You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. On April 12, 1881, Captain George Drever was arrested on two charges— libeling Henry Cadogan Rothery, commissioner of wreck, and, perhaps a tad more importantly, threatening to murder him. Both charges stemmed from a series of letters Drever had sent Rothery and others complaining about the treatment he'd received during Rothery's investigation of the wreck of the Norfolk, a merchant sailing ship that had been under Drever's command when its pumps got gummed up with nuts and it ran into a reef. And if that sentence doesn't make any sense to you, please go back and listen to part one. Thank you. Rothery had found Drever liable for the sinking, leaving him with a suspended captain's license, some unknown financial troubles, and a lot of hurt feelings. The record of Drever's case at the Old Bailey is frustratingly slight, but judging by newspaper reports, it was a weird one. Drever was definitely miffed about the outcome of the wreck inquiry. He thought Rothery had gotten the case wrong, and that he was hiding exculpatory evidence in the form of the ship's log. For what it's worth, in the wreck report, Rothery insinuated that Drever had tampered with and forged said log, so it's doubtful that whatever Drever thought was within it would have helped him. But none of that seems to have been what actually pushed the captain over the edge. Instead, everyone seems to have agreed Drever had been motivated mostly by an insult he felt Rothery had made. We don't know precisely what that insult was or why it would have come out in the course of the inquiry. But here's, I mean, here's the other mystery. Why? I don't quite understand why the matter of Drever's belief in the sea serpent would have cropped up in the Commission of Wreck Inquiry because... Mm. It was a different. It was a different boat to the Pauline. The Pauline was the boat which saw the sea serpent. Just, you know, so why, why would this topic even even have cropped up? And I, I, and that's one of those little things I'd love to know more about. Yeah, you know, what happened? But the consensus seems to have been that Drever was a good guy under normal circumstances, and that he had written the threatening letters only because of a very particular and peculiar belief he had which Rothery, apparently, had unacceptably denigrated. Belief is probably too weak a word. It was more like an obsession. The prison doctor called it monomania, and the newspapers were happy to jump on that. Uh, yeah, well, he's referred to by some of the newspapers as the sea serpent monomaniac. The sea serpent monomaniac. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Captain and the Serpent, Part 2. So we're all caught up, right? It's 1881, and Captain George Drever is being tried for death threats made against the Commissioner of Wreck. Well, not quite. The threatening bit is dropped. By the time Drever reached the Old Bailey, the more serious charge had been dropped, so that he was only defending against the accusation of libel. There's no way to know why, for sure, but Charles has a theory. Um, so I, I think some sort of deal was done. I, I get the impression, read, again reading between the lines, that it was clear that most people 
thought that this person wasn't a real villain, that he was kind of a victim of circumstances. Oh, this is Charles, by the way. Uh, my name is Charles Paxton. I'm a research fellow in statistical ecology at the University of St. Andrews. He's also, as I said last time, the foremost and only expert on Captain George Drever, as well as one other thing, which I'm saving for later. Whether the threats charge was dropped out of sympathy for Drever or not is ultimately impossible to say, but there does seem to have been a good amount of sympathy for him. It'd be easy enough to just tell you right now how the trial worked out, because there's very little else known about it besides the outcome. That, as well as the general air of sympathy, for an ordinarily good man, a pillar of the community, driven mad by the sea serpent. This is a bizarre little labyrinth, by the way. We don't know what Rothery might have said about the sea serpent. We don't know why the matter of sea serpents might have come up at all. And we also don't know the nature of Drever's sea serpent mania. What we do know a fairly good deal about is why Drever's madness, if it existed, took the form it did. The time Captain George Drever encountered the sea serpent. It was July of 1875, and George Drever had been a captain for around a decade. Most of his career had been unremarkable, at least in terms of pure newsworthiness. But back in 1870, he had caught some attention when a ship in his command, the Como, foundered in the mid-Atlantic. Drever's quick thinking had saved his crew when he ordered them to cut away the decking of the sinking ship and build makeshift life rafts. This idea of creating emergency life-saving gear on the spot would become one of Drever's two driving obsessions. And the other one came in July 1875. At that point, Drever had been captaining the Pauline, an American-built bark for at least four years, probably since shortly after the Como sunk. In the summer of 1875, the Pauline's mission was to ship coal from Newcastle to the HMS London, a British warship that was patrolling near Zanzibar. To get from eastern England to an island off the east coast of Africa, the Pauline had to take a circuitous course, traveling west all the way across the Atlantic and riding the trade winds down along South America before turning east again at the bottom of the continent and riding back across the Atlantic, around the Horn of Africa and up to Zanzibar. Which it did, arriving in October with the coal. And a story. Said story came dribbling out over the next few months. The earliest account, um, well, many of these reports get re reprinted in lots of different newspapers. Okay, 1875, probably in the Western, Western Morning News, but I've not got that, so the report I've got is the Scotsman. In the Scotsman, the story basically amounts to sailors were convinced they had seen a sea serpent. It's an intriguing couple of sentences, but without detail, it's hard to know what to do with it. Luckily, that detail soon showed up, and it brought pictures. Yeah, it comes, well, it comes out in several, several newspapers in slightly different forms. The most, one that was most, kind of most well known today is in the Illustrated London News, because it's associated with some images by the Reverend E.L. Penny, who wasn't a witness, but was the chaplain of HMS London. And for some reason, Penny took it on himself to draw, draw this encounter. Later on, uh, Drever himself draw, draws the encounter, um, but it was these illustrations by um, Penny which got into the Illustrated London News. Penny's report read, in part, Captain Drever of the Bark Pauline, bound with coals for Her Majesty's naval stores at Zanzibar, observed three very large sperm whales, and one of them was gripped round the body with two turns by what appeared to be a huge serpent. Its back was of a darkish brown and its belly white, with an immense head and mouth, the latter always open. The head and tail had a length beyond the coils about 30 feet. Its girth was about 8 or 9 feet. The story ran in the Illustrated London News on November 20th, 1875, and placed the first encounter, oh yes, the first encounter, hold on to that, about 20 miles off the coast of Brazil, which is the same location given in the second report, which was published just two days later. 
This was less of a sequel than an amendment, reprinting Penny's letter, but with an addendum, a confirmation from Dreaver's second officer, J.H. Landles, who telegrammed a letter from Zanzibar, reading, again in part, There were several whales altogether, perhaps four or five. They were all large ones, and the largest one was victim in this case. The animal was completely in the toils of the tremendous serpent. It had two complete turns around the body of the whale and the thickest part, and had it completely in its power. The whale was in an agony, either of pain or terror, perhaps both, and was continually throwing itself half out of the water. Judging the whale 40 feet in circumference, we estimate the serpent to be about 150 feet long. Our theory is that this animal swallows the whale, just as a boa constrictor does a buffalo. Finally, after another week, the third report came out, this time carried in the Shield's Daily News, and authored by our protagonist himself, Captain George Drever. The weather was fine and clear, wind and sea moderate. About one half mile to windward, we observed some black spots on the water, and a whitish pillar about 30 feet high above them. Oh, actually, we don't know... Uh, Drever's background, whether he was Scottish or Irish. So could you split the difference, sort of an Irvine Welsh meets the Lucky Charms leprechaun, but really slather it on thick so I get some negative reviews? The sea was so splashing, up fountain-like, several hundred yards around them. Perfect. At first glance, I thought they were breakers, and the pillar, a pinnacle rock bleached with the sun, but the pillar fell with a splash and rose and fell frequently. Good glasses showed me that it was a monster sea snake coiled twice around the body of a large sperm whale. The head and tail part of the snake, each about 30 feet long, forming a lever, crushing its victim to death with each revolution and appearing as each portion alternatively rose into the air like the arms of some gigantic windmill at about the same speed as it would do in a fresh breeze. <laughs> it's so fucking great! They both sank about every two minutes, remaining at that time underwater, and then coming to the surface, both still revolving, the struggle of the whale, and two other whales near at hand, lashing the water frantic with excitement, made the water in their vicinity like a boiling cauldron and the confused noise was distinctly heard. The struggle lasted about 15 minutes and finished with the tail portion of the whale elevated straight into the air, waving backwards and forwards and the tail furiously lashing the water in the last death struggle as it disappeared from our view. And sinking down head foremost, no doubt was soon gorged at the monster's leisure and a huge mouth may at this moment be in the process of digestion, and the monster of monsters in a dormant state. I had in my head a vision of what that would sound like. That was funny, but boy, that was a lot better. After a little more description, which we'll come back to later, Drever addressed his audience directly. I am aware that few people believe in the existence of the Great Serpent. People think it should be oftener seen by the numerous vessels always on the ocean. But the north coast of Brazil, noted for its monster reptiles, is also particularly adapted to the growth of sea monsters. It is a mid-torrent zone. The temperature of the water and air seldom below 81 degrees. The shore for a thousand miles is bordered by a coral reef or recife, and numerous banks or reefs lie in a considerable distance off the land. It may also be allowed that the serpent retained some portion of cunning mentioned in the scriptures. At least he shows wit enough not to leave a secure home and go meandering about the ocean like 
other fish to be captured and tortured for men's pleasure and profit. No doubt San Roque's good feeding ground it being a landmark for whales leaving the south for the North Atlantic, and the warm currents suitable for breeding. These three reports from Reverend Penny, Second Officer Landles, and Captain Drever ignited the never-quite-extinguished heat of sea serpent fever. They set the direction of the rest of Drever's life, sending him on a collision course with Commissioner of Wreck Rothery that eventually found him a criminal defendant, and they formed the basis of a mystery that many have tried to solve over the pursuant 150 years. Which makes this the perfect place to put an ad break, right? Yeah, no, that's the music. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In late November of 1871, a decade before George Drever's trial, newspapers around the world, and especially around the British Isles, were littered with articles and letters about the sea serpent, as witnessed by the crew of the Pauline. As we've somewhat thoroughly demonstrated, claims of sea serpent sightings were nothing new, but there are a number of things that make the Pauline sighting different. For starters, it wasn't the Pauline sighting, but sightings, plural. Five days after, and dozens if not hundreds of miles distant from, the July 8th sighting, where the serpent was supposedly seen asphyxiating a sperm whale, the crew of the Pauline ran into the monster again. This time it was much closer to the ship, and the circumstances are even stranger. As Reverend Penny put it, on July the 13th, this or another sea serpent was again seen, about 200 yards off the stern of the vessel, shooting itself along the surface, 40 feet of its body being out of the water at a time. Again, on the same day, it was seen once more with its body standing quite perpendicular out of the water to the height of 60 feet. This time it seemed as if determined to attack the vessel, and the crew and officers armed themselves for self-defense. What you're likely to notice first about this second event is that according to Drever and crew, the sea serpent was ready to attack the Pauline, but I think that's a red herring. After all, it didn't end up attacking, so at best this dive into the serpent's intentions is conjecture. Look a bit closer, and there is something weirder here. The first time around, the serpent was purported to be wrapped around a whale. That description raises its own set of puzzling questions which we'll return to, but they're nothing compared to how it behaves the second go-around. In Penny's words, which are backed up later by Landles and Drever, the serpent was, quote, "...standing quite perpendicular out of the water to the height of 60 feet." And that simply doesn't make sense. Just think about the basic physical science of it. If you wanted to have a 60-foot-long post sticking straight out of the water, you would need to build some serious stuff under the water to counterbalance and buoy it. 
If you were in shallow water, you could do it by using the bottom for grip, but that is not the circumstance here. So instead, you'd need either a very large supporting body under the surface, or else a powerful mechanism, big fins or the like, that could tread enough water to keep 60 feet of snake going straight up into the sky. For any kind of snake or serpent, this would be entirely and expressly impossible. It's not even the sort of thing a plesiosaur could do. Trying to make sense of the first encounter is, uh, difficult. But the second sighting is a whole other kettle of eels. It defies nearly all explanation from either skeptics or believers. And there's something else curious about the second sighting. That it was a second sighting. Seeing sea serpents is a very rare thing to happen. Mm -hmm. What do we think about witnesses that see sea serpents in different places? That, that, that seems to me... Repeatedly. Say that you can say the same thing about Bigfoot. So, for example, okay, if you live in a place where Bigfoot is, you might see Bigfoot in that place. But if you could then go to another place and see Bigfoot, then I'm going to start to think, well, you're either the most extraordinary lucky person in the world, <laughs> or you have a very low threshold for what constitutes evidence of Bigfoot. You might say, well, of course, they didn't see a sea serpent because there are no sea serpents to see. And yeah, I mean, that's a reasonable position. But then what did they see? We're going to get back to the trial eventually. We'll even go beyond it and explore George Drever's life post-trial. But it's about time I level with you. Yeah, I think George Drever is an interesting guy, the sort of Victorian weirdo we've talked about on this show before and will again, but he's not the primary reason I'm spending a month on this story, and he's not the primary reason I reached out to Charles Paxton, either. What I've been hiding is that Charles isn't just an expert on Drever, and he's not just a scholar at St. Andrews. Uh, my name is Charles Paxton. I'm a research fellow in statistical ecology at the University of St. Andrews. But as a hobby, I look into the science and history of aquatic monsters, both sea and freshwater. I first ran across Charles when I was researching a bonus episode about sea monks and sea bishops, two mythological animals that were, you know, exactly what they sound like. Either they were mermen who were actual servants of God, or else a joke played by nature on the church. A lot of explanations have been put forward of what the sea monks might have actually been, giant squid or Jenny Hanover's rays cut into hoax creatures. Charles wrote a paper in 2005 arguing that they could have been seals and or angel sharks, which is, all things considered, a pretty good theory, though I personally am fond of the one that says Protestants began seeing monk and bishop fish because they believed they were signs of the evils of Catholicism myself. Anyway, the point is that Charles Paxton has a lot of interesting papers like this about George Drever and the sea serpent or the origin of the monkfish because... In addition to his mainline work, Charles is also one of a small number of people doing real science in the field of cryptozoology. So then how did you get into the, is it fair to say the cryptozoology game or is that a little too loaded uh, a term? Um, I, I, well, the meaning of cryptozoology I think has changed from its perhaps its original meaning. Um, I don't have a problem really being described as a crypto cryptozoologist in the old-fashioned Hoovelman's sense, in the way it was kind of originally defined as kind of a zoological problem. I would be less keen to be associated with cryptozoology in the sense of investigating all number of strange entities being ostensibly described by people, including alien beings and, and things like that. That's, that's not quite my thing. My thing is more when people genuinely or maybe not so genuinely, report something kind of zoological where they're claiming it's a zoological entity. What are the, you know, what, what's the science behind that? You know, does it represent an unknown species or does it represent an interesting psychological process that involves psychology and folklore and, and things like that? I'm aware that a lot of you are unsettled at the combination of real science and cryptozoology being spoken in the same sentence. And so is Charles. There's a debate about, you know, is well, I think there's debate about whether cryptozoology is pseudoscience. And I think that cryptozoology covers, especially now, a range of different activities and beliefs, some of which I think could be called 
true science, others of which are not necessarily necessarily science, but they could be high quality scholarship in the sense it's history rather than science. And then there's other things which, yeah, I wouldn't. Are cranky. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't like to use pejoratives, but (laughs) wouldn't wouldn't be wouldn't come under the remit of science. I see. I see. Um, But even the things that don't come out in the remit of science, I I don't think there's anything bad in people going off for the weekend and looking for Bigfoot. Some skeptics seem to be troubled by this, but I I, I think it's quite delightful that people go out into the the weekends to look for Bigfoot, even if Bigfoot, even if I don't personally believe Bigfoot exists. I I think we want to live in a world where people go out and and have, have, have interesting beliefs. They're not doing anybody any harm. They're um, getting out into nature. I think that's great. And maybe maybe the skeptics are wrong. Maybe Bigfoot's out there, and I, there'd be nobody more delighted than I would be if Bigfoot was actually, was actually found. I think that would be fantastic. I feel like Charles Paxton is a man without a country because he has the audacity to examine claims of mysterious creatures. He's often greeted by a knee-jerk aversion by skeptics. But because he himself is ultimately skeptical and careful in examining those claims, he's not exactly welcomed into the warm bosom of cryptozoology either. But it doesn't mean I'm sort of fighting a two-front war between skeptics, some skeptics, some, I should stress that, some skeptics on the one hand and some sort of believers on the other. and funny enough, one of the feature I notice of, of both the skeptical and believers on these sorts of debates is often they assume, especially in the field of cryptozoology, that nobody has been publishing any peer-reviewed cryptozoology for different prejudicial reasons. On the one hand, for, for the skeptics saying, well, it's not science. On the other hand, the believers saying, well, you know, all the scientists, they're prejudiced against, against us, us, us cryptozoologists. Um, but of course, the reality is there is a small handful of us who are actually doing this. Uh, and, 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 and we're, we're, we're not, and we're discovering a story which is not quite doesn't fit quite neatly into either either camp. But that's all too bad because I find Charles to be an incredibly interesting thinker, and the work he does on cryptozoology and his thinking about the problems of cryptozoology are really fucking fascinating. With many of these sea serpent sightings, are, there are there are certain interpretations which I think are more probable, but I I'm reluctant necessarily to say precise. Oh, that's definitely this mm-hmm. and actually i think that's a real intellectual problem which is i can do things statistically which can tell us about the properties of large groups of reports but actually i'm increasingly becoming of the belief it's actually difficult to say this is the best interpretation of this particular report because i actually think this is a real problem with anomalies research because there are kind of two approaches to it one of which is done and the other one isn't done. The, the, the second approach is my statistical one, but that only deals with groups of reports. It can't tell you about individual reports. It can only say you're making generalizations. And then there's the interpretation of individual reports. And, and, and I think, yeah, the philosophical problem is, well, what's the best interpretation of a report? What rules do we use to say that this is the best interpretation of a report? And it strikes me that, well, there's two, two rules I can think of as a scientist, which we normally apply on a larger scale, which is, explainability mm-hmm. and some sort of notion of simplicity um but quite how those rules work in the case of sea serpents for example it, it's difficult to say so you know because you could say well one simple explanation for what driver saw is that he saw a sea serpent because that fits perfectly his description right and that but, is what he certainly thought and that's what he, he interpreted so you could say well that's the simplest explanation um which has great explanatory power but then, is that the notion of simplicity we want, or do we have another notion of simplicity? I mean, one um, another example of the explanation for what Drever saw was that it was the sperm whale was uh, entangled with fishing debris, right? Well, is that a simpler explanation? Well, in some ways, it kind of is in the sense that it doesn't involve an unknown animal. But on the other hand, you could say it involves two entities. It does involve the sperm whale and some wreckage that it's been involved in. Right. And, and this that strikes me as a real problem because what someone thinks is a good explanation or what someone thinks is um is simplicity could could vary quite a lot and this is why i'm wanting to kind of get into the, the philosophical literature on this because i'm sure philo- philosophical people m- must have thought about this but i'm a scientist so i'm not really that up on yeah it's a it's almost it's a bayesian problem oh yeah because yeah because yeah, prior belief could come into it as well yeah yeah certainly um so if you if you kind of have a strong belief in sea serpents, then you, what you're going to interpret could be as a sea serpent. If you're skeptical, 
in one direction, then you 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 might you might think something else. But if you're in skeptical in another direction, then you might you might go down another path. Um, but of course, in the Bayesian analysis, you take that prior belief and you alter it. You you change the over the final belief in the light of the data. But that's a statistical problem. Right. How do you do that with a single with a single case. Right. And that I think is the big super question of. It's taken me twenty years to realize that is the big question of anomalies research. So yeah, eventually we will get back to the trial and to the rest of George Drieber's story. But first, let's spend some time taking the claim of George Drieber and his crew seriously and thinking about what it could mean, because it's a real juicy area of inquiry. Question the first. What did George Drieber, second mate Landles, and the rest of the crew of the Pauline see? There are essentially three classes of answer. The first is that they saw nothing, that they made it up, that it was a hoax. The second is that they misidentified some other thing as a sea serpent. And the third answer, which we're going to take seriously, is the real long shot possibility. That the sea serpent that Pauline saw was a sea serpent. It is very unlikely that the Pauline sightings were just an out-and-out -out hoax, a pure fabrication. Nobody involved ever suggested such a thing, and everyone involved appears to have been truly convinced of what they saw. Drever, Landles, and crew even signed an affidavit attesting to the event when they returned to England. Drever's sincerity is, of course, the most obvious. He wrote numerous letters to newspapers pleading his case. He published leaflets about it and gave interviews. Not to mention that when he felt Rothery had impugned his belief, he threatened to kill him over it. Which I guess might have a bit of the lady protest too much about it, but it's probably safe to say that the crew of the Pauline did see something. So what? Assuming that it was not a sea serpent, for now, there are then three theories. The first is that what Drever and the rest saw was actually a sperm whale that was caught in some maritime debris. You mentioned, um, first off, the, the theory that this was a entangled whale, which I believe is the theory of Robert France, is that correct? Yeah, so Robert France is the most prominent advocate of the idea that many sea serpent sightings are actually the entanglement of kind of known marine mammal species with human debris. Mostly fishing nets, I presume. Yeah, mostly, mostly fishing nets. But it could be, I think in this case, he thinks it's like the spar of some wreckage of a boat or something like that. Hmm. This explanation was proffered by Robert L. France, an environmental scholar who's currently an associate professor in the Department of Plant, Food, and Environmental Sciences at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a really strong theory. Perhaps... Too strong a theory, according to Charles. I, I like this hypothesis, and I think it does work for some sightings. But in a sense, it's too good, because basically we can explain any sea serpent sighting can be fine-tuned by saying, well, it's, you know, it's this marine mammal with this sort of fishing wreckage. And, and there, so this is, another, this is an example. That this has perfect explanatory power. Right. Um, but it's almost too perfect explanatory power. Yeah, it's too protean. Yeah, and so... So going back to the problem I talked about before about the balance between you know, simplicity and explanatory power, you know, is it a simple hypothesis? Well, in a sense, it is because you know it's, it's fishing fishing wreckage. We know there is fishing wreckage right. entangled with a whale. We know there are whales. So in that way, it works quite well. Um, but it does leave me kind of unsatisfied in in some ways. Uh, we've exchanged a few emails just to kind of say, well, what do you think of this problem? Because I mean, he he he's kind of. I don't think there's one universal explanation for sea monster sightings. Sure. Um, France, I think, to an extent, does think that, you know, virtually everything is some form of large marine animal associated with um, fishing gear or some sort of boat debris and stuff. And I, I think he's got a point. And, and some things he explains really, really well. Other things that I'm kind of, I'm less, less certain about. This one, the first Reaver sighting, I'm not convinced it's wreckage. The other, the other hypothesis which I kind of like, because it ties into a hypothesis I have for another sighting from the previous century, is, is the one that the, it could be uh, the penis of a sperm whale. That we're I like with. that theory as well. <laughs> I personally am pushing for the penis theory, because I am 13 years old. 
But it really does scan lurid sense of humor aside because of another detail of the sighting. In Penny, Drever, and Landl's reports, as well as the affidavit signed by the crew, they said that the other whales on the scene seemed strange. Drever again. Two of the largest sperm whales I've seen came slowly towards our vessel. Their bodies were more than usually elevated out of the water. They were currently not blowing nor making a noise, but seemed quite paralyzed from the fearful sight. Yeah, that, that's a possibility, but I, I do like that because it does tie, tie in with the description of the animals being frantic with excitement. So, right. <laughs> of course, they might be frantic. I mean, if they were genuinely being attacked by a sea serpent, they still might be frantic with excitement. So, right. um, It could be that the other whales were excited by an attack, or it could be that they were excited by something else. I hate doing that. I wrote that in. I wrote that in to do. Oh, how embarrassing. This explanation was first proposed by Henry Lee, a naturalist in charge of the Brighton Aquarium, who wrote the first comprehensive skeptical history of sea monster sightings in 1884, called Sea Monsters Unmasked. Lee thought what Drever had seen might have been, quote, the amours of two whales whose pectoral fins were entwined. Skeptic Adrian Schein, leader of the Loch Ness Project, signs on to this view, but thinks that the whales could have been humpbacks rather than sperm whales, misidentified because of the great distance at which they were viewed, roughly half a mile. Charles also wrote a paper supporting the cetacean in flagrante delicto theory and specifically conjecturing that the serpent might not have been a sperm whale fin, but a sperm whale penis. And if you're not afraid of what it'll do to your ad preferences, you can Google sperm whale penis yourself and... Woo, yeah, that one's plausible. But it is not Charles's favorite theory. So then your favorite explanation, at least for the first sighting, is that this is a, a giant squid. Yeah, if you put a gun to my head and said, What's, yeah, I think I'd, I'd say that. I, but I'm not 100% convinced. The giant squid hypothesis has a lot going for it. Well, I mean, we, I mean it's the ultimate wildlife photography, right? To actually kind of get that. <laughs> but I, I'm assuming that... Your average giant squid, when it's been attacked by a sperm whale, doesn't want to be eaten by the sperm whale. And if I was a giant squid, I would... If I was a sperm whale, I'd want to eat it tail first. If I was a giant squid, I'd want to try and make sure I'm in the position where my arms and tentacles can sort of do this to stop myself from being swallowed. And I could well imagine that you've got, you're, trying to, you're flailing with your arms and your tentacles. And so I could imagine that at a distance this could be seen as coils of a serpent wrapped around, wrapped around the body. For one thing, it describes a known behavior. And um, we know that sperm whales do hunt giant squid, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's um, a given. So that's a given. So there's, there's no, no doubt about that. It also makes sense of one of the more glaring issues in Drever's interpretation. Drever and Landles thought that what they were seeing was a serpent constricting a whale like a boa constrictor. But that is just plain implausible. They, they see this going on and it's interpreted as like a constricting snake trying to basically suffocate the sperm whale but this interpretation seems a bit strange because sperm whales actually have collapsible lungs so they're right. like a really bad animal to try and constrict so it right. seems very strange contrary to what might seem like common sense whales don't hold their breath not the way we do while there's still a lot about whale diving behavior we don't entirely understand, we're pretty sure that they exhale before going under, rather than inhaling. Which makes sense because whales, sperm whales in particular, go very deep, especially if they're hunting giant squid. If they simply held their breath like people, they would be in big trouble. Like human divers, they'd have to worry about nitrogen narcosis, a state much like drunkenness created by nitrogen at pressure. and were still the bends. So whales have collapsible lungs, which prevents these issues. It also makes them an especially bad target for constriction. However much you might want to credit their observations, Drever and Landles had to be wrong about how such a sea serpent on whale attack would work. But if you reverse positions, it suddenly makes sense. Do we know whether I've, I've always been under the impression that giant squid don't do 
well in low pressure, like around the surface. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, they're, they're generally gone as being um, uh, inhabitants of the midwaters. So if they're at the surface, it's generally assumed that they're ill, because certainly the ones that have been found off the coast of Japan, for example, are normally kind of a bit lethargic. Um, so what probably would have happened was that the sperm whale had engaged with the giant squid at depth and then come to the surface. So it's the giant squid which is the one that's in trouble there. That's right. <laughs> so right. Dreamer's interpretation then is completely inverted. It's not some fiendish, devilish monster of the deep consuming this lovely innocent sperm whale. It's the sperm right. whale that's bounced pulled this poor giant squid up to the surface, which is now fighting for its life. Right. Um, while the sperm whale's trying to jump on it. Henry Lee was also the first person to suggest this explanation, that what appeared to be a sea serpent wrapped around a sperm whale might have actually been the tentacles of a giant squid being attacked by a sperm whale. This would also explain why Drever and Landles said that the serpent was countershaded, darker on top and lighter on the bottom. Giant squid tentacles are countershaded, whereas whale penises and fishing nets are not. But even this theory mm, isn't perfect. According to the reports, the Pauline witnessed this whole kerfuffle when it was just 11 miles off the coast of Brazil. Giant squid are generally found farther out to sea than that. So for this explanation to work, the squid would have had to be in the wrong place, or Drever would have had to be wrong about his ship's position, which, given how he ran the Como right onto a reef years later, eh, could be. Curiously, Drever himself gave the last possibility for misidentification in a letter he wrote to Henry Lee trying to convince him the sea serpent was real. He told Lee that several of his crew members initially thought it could have been two large fish fighting a whale. Landles said it might have been a swordfish and a thresher shark. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense in itself, but it does complicate the meta-narrative quite a bit. All the newspaper articles, letters, and affidavits clearly and simply state that all of these people saw the sea serpent and recognized it as such. But in his letter to Lee, Drever contradicts that. Some of the crew who witnessed the event at first thought it was something much more mundane, a couple of large fish. And one of those people was Landles, Drever's second mate and the other guy who goes on the record with the story. I probably don't have to say it, but this potentially deeply injures one of the main strengths of the Pauline encounter. Instead of a clear, long sighting shared by multiple witnesses, it could have been that Drever alone came to the conclusion that he saw the sea serpent, and that his interpretation was then impressed upon Landles and the other crewmen, consciously or otherwise, coercively or otherwise, by their captain. But let's tack the other way. Could Drever have been right? Could he have seen the sea serpent? After this... Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. 
Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. So we've examined the possibility of the of the entanglement and of the giant squid and of the um, copulating whales. What about the the simple the the arguably simplest explanation that there is a real sea serpent that that he is correct? What do you make of that possibility? I think. The best argument against that hypothesis now, not at the time of Treba's experience, would be, I think, we would have discovered it. Hmm. Every year, every month, all around the world, there are uh, organizations doing whale surveys. That's my proper job, is analyzing data from whale surveys. And to my knowledge, no one has ever they are, I mean, on, on surveys, they often say, oh, we saw something that was an unidentified marine mammal or something like that, that would be coded that way. Um, but no one's ever said, look, I saw something really weird and extraordinary. Um, so I, I, so my evidence is kind of negative evidence. So, so I think that now in the 21st century, we would have discovered sea serpents if they're there. I do think there are unknown animals in the sea. I do think the large animals in the sea. I was about to say, that is that is the other part of your research that really caught my eye, is you've made a technical, statistical uh, argument that there are large, undiscovered marine animals. Yeah. Um, but I don't think they're kind of at the surface. So that the classic... I don't even deny the idea that there could be kind of serpentine, deep, large serpentine deep water animals, but the idea that there's something that regularly, or even irregularly, comes to the surface... Mm and moves at the surface like the witnesses of sea serpent reports say. If that happened, we would have caught them on scientific whale surveys. Because there are a lot of those go on. And and someone would have would have would have recorded that. And I'm and with so, you, but I'm playing devil's advocate here. No, no. Uh, um, what is the difference then between that possibility and you brought up earlier the rogue waves, which were something that sailors said existed for centuries that science dismissed until what 20 years ago yeah um and that's a good, good point so to one issue could be that you know you know how do we deal with really rare well let's imagine that sea serpents exist and they're very very rare hmm. but if they exist in their classic form they are air breathers so they must come to the surface oh that's interesting i hadn't considered that so i mean this is a similar argument for a reptilian or mammalian origin for the Loch Ness Monster as well. You know, right. the animals must come to the surface. Um, but in, in a sense, though, we have discovered serpentine, giant serpentine marine animals. It's just that people don't think of them as giant serpentine marine animals. And that's what, that's many species of whale. Actually, we often see them in profile in pictures, these kind of deep kind of bellies and everything. But actually, many of them Actually, look at them in the wild. They are incredibly serpentine. Yeah. And there's a genus Baradius, which actually a new species of that has been recently described from the North Pacific, which actually are really, really serpentine. But even some of the big baleen whales, blue whales and stuff, are actually kind of... Well, fin whales and um, grey whales. Um, you know, they're kind of... They're really serpentine.
You'll notice that Charles's argument against the sea serpent only works in modernity. In 1875, when the sighting occurred, or 1881, when the trial was held, the data for that argument didn't exist. In fact, to the contrary, Charles thinks that at that time, the weight of the available evidence favored sea serpents. If we look at the rate at which people are discovering new animals, that period is the point where we're discovering like more species of whale than any other point, virtually any other point in the history of science since, since the 18th century. Yeah. So it seems to me, if people are finding lots and lots of weird whales, and they are, and then there's people reporting anecdotally sea serpents, it seems to me a bit weird to be completely skeptical about it, because why wouldn't there be serpentine animals? There doesn't seem any reason for them not to be. So why was Drever so seemingly alone? Why was his belief taken so widely as crazy? Now, we talked a lot about that issue in part one, and a few of the theories as to how sea serpents went from credible facts of life in the early 1800s to widely discredited by the 1880s. Those theories involve funny cartoons, a heavy handful of hoaxes, and a low-key scientific feud between Richard Owen and Charles Lyell. Our Charles, Paxton, is unconvinced by all of them. And I agree, but for different reasons. Unfortunately, Charles is working on some material about this issue right now, so he wasn't willing or able to talk about his alternative hypothesis. But I know from interrogating him that it is different from mine. You all know how much you should trust me on things like this, but it makes for a good transition into the next act, so humor me here on my theory. What I think is that belief in sea serpents wasn't seen as absurd in 1881. Yes, science and the public were each less accepting of sea serpent claims by then than they were in 1820, but I don't think the idea was discredited. In fact, one of the big boys of science, our man Thomas Huxley, who demolished Richard Owen in the Great Hippocampus debate, was still saying it made sense that there would be sea serpents in the 1890s. But Captain George Drever didn't believe in the existence of sea serpents. He believed in the sea serpent, as in the Leviathan, straight out of the Old Testament. Drever thinks that the sea serpent is a vindication of scripture, and in fact, that he's kind of been kind of gifted by God this experience as this kind of proof of the nature of scripture. He clearly was very, very religious, and he clearly sees his experience as a vindication of one part, one part, at least one part of, of, of the Old Testament. In the booklet he published in 1889, he explicitly makes the comparison between what he saw and what God describes in the book of Job, and dismissed theologians who compared the Leviathan instead to whales. Landels, too, believed that what Drever saw was biblical, writing in his initial letter, I must finish by saying that we think it not improbable that this is the great Leviathan spoken of by Job. Read the account of it as given in the book of Job, and you have the best idea the animal is possible to gain from paper. In his booklet, Drever took on the tone of a zealot, writing, I sincerely believe that God, for some wise purpose, has been pleased to reveal this great wonder of animated nature to me. He appears to have made similar comments in his letters to Rothery and the rest. And I think that's all very telling. Thomas Huxley would have been all too happy to hear a report of a sea serpent still surviving from prehistory. But the sea serpent from the Bible? Nah, that shit wasn't going to fly in the late 19th century, when Darwinism was beginning its ascendancy. Drever's belief being religiously based also makes a bit of sense out of why he would have taken things so far. Not a lot of Loch Ness monster believers have threatened to kill their skeptics, but the same can't be said for religious devotees. For my money, and this is only my money, the reason Drever was assumed to be crazy was the same reason he had threatened to kill Rothery. His belief was, to the people of 1881, the height of the irrational. The question, then, was whether that irrationality would be enough to convince a court to let him off. 
what there is to definitively, factually say about the case of Captain George Drever is slight. He was arrested on April 12, 1881 by Chief Inspector Donald Sutherland Swanson, who would go on to lead the investigation into Jack the Ripper. During his arrest, Drever inexplicably showed Swanson a sample of sea serpent he had caught off the coast of South Africa. When the Norfolk had struck the reef off of Boa Vista, Drever had rescued this sea serpent sample, storing it in a bottle of rum and safely removing it from the sinking ship. Just what this sample was, and what Drever believed it to be, isn't entirely clear. Best guess is that it was a sea snake, which Drever perhaps believed to be the young of the Leviathan sea serpent he'd seen years earlier. Why this was necessary to produce for Inspector Swanson is completely beyond me, but it was hardly the most incriminating thing he did in the process, since he also told Swanson, the arresting officer, that if Commissioner of Rec Rothery showed up in court to testify, he would shoot him on the stand. Originally, Drever was brought up on two charges, threatening Rothery's life and libeling him. When he finally made it to the Old Bailey for trial in May, the threatening charge had been dropped, perhaps because the court was sympathetic to his situation. He pled guilty to the remaining libel charge, and then his attorney, Barrister Mead, brought forth a number of witnesses who testified to the good character of the captain. If he had one flaw, it was his overweening belief in and passion for the sea serpent, which Rothery had somehow insulted. Nevertheless, Meade said, it was never Drever's intention to harm Rothery, but only to bring attention to his story. Meade told the court that as far as the sea serpent went, Drever had, quote, been suffering under a delusion respecting its existence, but regarding all other matters was quite sane. Justice George Denman, a liberal judge and politician who favored criminal reform, was sympathetic to Drever's case. He said that the captain had a, quote, kind and tender regard for those that came under his jurisdiction. The defense had effectively argued that Drever was a good man. At the same time, he had threatened the life of Henry Cadigan Rothery, a fellow civil servant and an acquaintance of Denman's from back in college. He sentenced Drever to three months in prison without hard labor and further bonded him to keep the peace and leave Rothery alone for the next year. Press coverage was largely critical of this decision. The public consensus appears to have been that Drever should have gone to hospital, not prison, because he was crazy about the sea serpent. Captain George Drever evidently served his time and kept the peace, and once the 12 months had passed, began again writing letters attacking his prosecution as corrupt, his defense as inept, and disparaging once more the commissioner of REC, Henry Cadigan Rothery. But while there was some talk about whether to take his bond or revoke his captain's license, it doesn't appear that any such action was taken. After his conviction, Drever's public profile settled down a bit. He didn't disappear, not by a long shot, but in terms of pure column inches, he only once again achieved the heights of the serpent sighting and the trial. He continued writing letters defending the existence of the sea serpent, and in 1883 married that with his other obsession, lifeboats. Drever's idea for lifeboats, if you'll recall, was seemingly birthed by his experience in the sinking of the Como when he instructed his crew to chop up the ship and turn it into flotation devices on the fly. The pinnacle of his lifeboat design was what he called the Water Velocipede, which was a full, hand-cranked paddleboat of surprising complexity, considering one was meant to piece it together as they sunk into the ocean out of boxes of wine and a barrel. At the 1883 Great Fisheries Exhibition, he displayed the Water Velocipede and another of his designs, along with his rum-preserved sea snake, I guess to draw in the crowds. And, to some degree or another, it seems to have worked. Because at the Fisheries Exhibition, Drever caught the attention of Alfred Ward, 
a self-styled professor and swimming instructor who had invented his own life-saving doohickey, which seems to have been essentially a cork wetsuit that would, in theory, keep the wearer buoyant and warm. Ward and Drever teamed up to offer a dual demonstration. Drever would cross the English Channel in his velocipede, while someone, decked in Ward's wetsuit, swam alongside him for the whole journey. And that someone was to be Ward's son, who was nine years old! After swallowing some seawater and getting violently ill, the young boy managed to unhappily complete a four-hour test swim from Dover to Folkestone. Drever fared worse. His velocipede broke down. When they tried a second time, Drever's boat drifted with the tide out of sight into the open ocean. He was presumed drowned, but was rescued the next day from the middle of the channel by a passing steamship. Alfred Ward, at long last, came to his senses and stopped forcing his prepubescent child to publicly test his experimental gear in dangerous waters. Drever, who had so far encountered greater disaster, did not. Having twice failed at a much shorter and safer journey, he announced his intention to cross the channel. The first time out, he was beaten back to shore by the waves, as if the sea itself was warning him off his course. He failed to take its advice. Three days later, he again attempted to cross the channel. Two miles into the journey, his velocipede began taking on water. He eventually had to turn the boat upside down and splay himself out over its hull until a fishing boat came along and saved him. The Globe said he should have been arrested for attempted suicide. Nevertheless, he endeavored once more, and again was only saved thanks to the intervention of a sailboat that happened upon him. The satirical newspaper Punch termed the word Dreverication for repeatedly trying the same stupid plan. The next year, he left England and immigrated to Australia, where things seemed to have gone better for him, he gave non-disastrous demonstrations of his save-yourself lifeboats and public lectures of some kind or another. While he continued writing and talking about the sea serpent and remained especially focused on his lifeboats, no one ever seems to have connected him with the George Drevers who had seen the serpent, gone to jail, or repeatedly swamped in the channel. In his new Australian life, he was finally esteemed. He repurposed his lifeboats as amusements, manning a stand at Centennial Park, where people could rent the water velocipede like those swan boats at Central Park. It seems to have been a successful, if not beloved, attraction up until New Year's Day, 1890, when a boy by the name of Hopkins took one of the velocipedes out on the pond and capsized. Luckily, the boy managed to swim to shore, but not before Drever had jumped in to save him. In the water, Drever perhaps suffered a stroke, or a heart attack, or maybe just exhausted himself. Whatever the reason, he drowned there, near his lifeboats. His obituaries ranged from the flattering to the deferential. They noted his hard work on life-saving gear and his adventurous career as a captain. They said nothing about the Channel Crossing, or Commissioner Rothery, and they didn't contain a single syllable about the Sea Serpent. As the century turned over, reports of sea monsters found new life, but they were a new breed, distinct in numerous ways from those made by the Daedalus or the Pauline. The monsters spotted in the 20th century, in Loch Ness or Lake Champlain or Chesapeake Bay or Lake Akita or Oconagon Lake or Cadborough Bay, tend to take after the plesiosaurs. Giant sea serpents, once so prevalent that even top scientific minds considered their existence all but assured, are now extinct even in most imaginations. Today, most of the time when a sea monster is reported, it's described as a long-necked, finned marine reptile. Most of them have been turned into cute cartoon mascots with diminutive names, Nessie, Champy, Chessie, Issy, and Caddy. They adorn t-shirts and coffee mugs. Drever's sightings of the sea serpent are still poured over and studied, by skeptics, by believers, and by people in between, like Charles. 
But I think that George Strever wouldn't consider even the most fervent of cryptozoologists as his allies. To say that what he saw was a dinosaur would be just as bad as calling it a fishing net or a whale dick. To him, the serpent was the serpent. The great serpent, the Leviathan, God's will made manifest. A creature of the deep that would live on until it was defeated by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Even the biblical literalists, who often infect cryptozoological circles, don't bother with that story anymore. That idea, one of the oldest ideas in human history, effectively died out with George Drever. It's a passing we might not have even noticed, if not for Charles Paxton. So I think it's only fair we give him the last word. And he had immense self-belief. And like all people with self-belief, it can be a blessing and it can be be a curse. You know, it's um, the same, you know, the self-belief causes him to fervently, you know, argue for the existence of the sea serpent. It causes him to perhaps recklessly try and cross the channel. It also, you know, the strong beliefs cause him to you know, be prepared to jump into the water to try and save the life of somebody else. It's, you know, these psychological features can be both good things and bad things in, in people's lives. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think we need more George Reavers in the world. Perhaps not the threatening to kill people aspect of George Reavers' personality, <laughs> but I think a world full of, you know, with, with George Reavers, it wouldn't be a bad world necessarily. For today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Voice talent by Nick Sands, Steve Peebles, and the man of a thousand British dialects, Andrew Bailing. Not to mention the specialist of special talent, Charles Paxton. Thank you, Charles, for giving me your time, your wisdom, and your PDF access. This series took a little more work and a lot more prep than average, and I would like to do more things like it going forward. If you'd like that too, you can help. First of all, tell a friend about the show. Badger them, hector them, become ungovernable. And then head over to patreon.com theconstant and sign up to support the making of this show. More audience and more patrons means more time and more resources. Those would be swell. Plus, ad-free episodes dropped early just for you along with monthly bonus content. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where it's been a while since we've heard from the Mothman, hasn't it? Listen, it's quiet. A little too quiet. This has been The Constant. Judge, uh, Justice George Denman, a liberal George, uh. I'm losing my mind. <laughs>